The opinions and views shared in this podcast are the opinions and views of the host and the host alone. They are not a reflection of his employer or any other organization that the host is a member of. The host does not speak for anyone, only himself. This is the I Am Pit Podcast. Get ready for contact. What's up, everybody? This is Dex with the I Am Pits podcast. And today, we got a real special guest on the show. Today with me, I have former Dunwoody police officer, Nathan Daly. He was recently medically retired after he got into an incident on the interstate and was dragged by a suspect vehicle. He is also the founder of the Blue Phoenix Initiative, a 5013C, dedicated to bringing support and awareness to the silent suffering that police officers endure due to severe work-related injuries and traumatic events. So I heard Nathan on an episode of the Failure to Stop podcast with Mike the Cop and Eric Tanzi. Man, as I was listening to this guy speak, I was just enamored. The things he was saying, it was just so profound. And he just drew me in. And I said to myself, I have to get this guy on my podcast. And I mean, you know, a lot of people like to point out problems but not provide solutions. I'm guilty of that myself. But not not Nathan Daly. This man not only pointed out the problems, he brought the solutions for a lot of the problems that we're having between law enforcement and the community. And I was truly impressed with him. So I reached out to him and he agreed to come on to the I Am Pits podcast. But with that said and no further wait, Everybody, welcome Nathan Daly. What's up, my man? Hey, what's good, brother? How you doing? Man, not too bad, dude. Enjoying the second day off. Very, very happy to have you on the podcast. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hey, I, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you again for uh, bringing me up and, uh, you know, allowing me to just kind of, you know, speak and and give my uh, give my two cents to this, this uh, larger issue that's going on in this country involving law enforcement. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, man, like I said, we're going to start from the beginning. So tell the people where you're from. All right. So originally um, I'm from California. Uh, my family is from uh, Jamaica. So they moved out here uh, a little bit after the 60s, man. And we set up shop in California, uh, spent a lot of time out there. Then uh, we moved out here to Georgia, where I'm currently residing. And uh, from there, um, I kind of just been hanging out since high school, college, and then off to uh, into the uh, police academy. Man, so how old are you? I think you're around the same age as me. Yeah, you're almost two years younger than me. But, man, so we're close to the same age. Man, so what was it for you that's, that drew you to policing and made you decide, I want to be a police officer? You know, that's a good question, man. A lot of people have been asking me that lately. Um, I actually kind of stumbled into it. To be honest, uh, at the time I was working at the hospital as a uh, registration um, clerk, I guess you would say I would register patients into the hospital and I would make I would get a lot of contact with them, um, with the police as they come in, bringing patients in, bringing suspects in. And I would work closely with them to register suspects and, and, and victims and things of that nature. And so I had a lot of experience speaking with investigators, uh, SWAT team members, regular patrol officers. And, you know, just sitting out there hearing their stories, you know, it was very fascinating. Uh, eventually, a couple of them were like, hey, man, we could use some good officers. You know, we're hiring. Thank you. Great uh, addition to the team. And, you know, a couple of them were like, yeah, we'd love to put a word in for you. And I was like, ah, I was, I was hesitant. <laughs> and eventually, man, I just got moved, you know, to, uh, to, to sign up, signed up, went to the academy. I hated the academy. Um, I, was, <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you, man. What was uh, it about the academy, the academy that you hated? Uh, you know, it's par- my, my department was very paramilitary. And so I, I, I'm not really a military. I love the military. I love, uh, you know, shout out to the military, uh, veterans. Um, but I, it just, it just not for me, you know, I was struggling to kind of keep up with the, uh, the physical training and then the, uh, uh, the hazing, you know, and then kind of getting punished with everybody when someone else does something wrong, you know, um, dealing with all the multiple personalities. Uh, I had a big class. It was like 54 people. Uh, and it was, man, it was draining. And we had to be in at like five in the morning to like five in the afternoon. 
Um, and it was it was different, man. It was something I never experienced before. I almost quit like twice, you know. <laughs> and uh, but for the for the most part, uh, I ended up sticking it through, man, and 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 loved every minute of it afterwards. And after graduating, as you know, it's like you're like a family, you know, with those men and women you were in the academy with, and then of course with the department. Man, so uh, when did you go to the police academy? What year? Uh, 2006, I believe, 2006 or 2007. Man, yeah. so yeah, you got to jump on me on that one. Yeah, I, shoot, I just got out of the Army in 2006, man. It still wasn't even on my radar yet, so. <laughs> yeah. Dude. Man, and so and so, where did you get your start in policing at, and where did you go to the academy? Yeah, so I started off here in Georgia. I went to uh, DeKalb County uh, Police Department. It's very... Um, very, very renowned department, I would say, in this in the oh, southern yeah. southern hemisphere of this country. And then in, even other states are very familiar with the cab. Um, and so started there. Academy was like six months long, one of the longest running academies in Georgia. Um, and it, it was uh, intense, a lot, a lot to uh, I learned a lot. Um, great experience. And uh, yeah, man, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And and so when you st- so you go to DeKalb County's Police Academy, where did you start policing? Yeah, same place. So I started in DeKalb as well. Um, after I graduated uh, from the academy, I actually stayed at the department for about seven years. Um, and uh, yeah, I worked different shifts. Um, I worked in different capacities within the department. From I uh, did a uh, burglary investigations to um, uh, street crime task force unit and i was also in special ops now so you've done a lot around the pd man that's and that's good to be have a diverse experience you know some guys like me man i got in and i just love being on the beat i did a two-year stint up stint on the marshals task force but you know my heart's really been in the streets and just being a beat officer man what's been your favorite job thus far that you've had um honestly man i would i would have to i would have to um I would have to mirror your sentiments as well, man. I actually prefer working the beat. I like working, interacting with the people. Um, I I was put on a burglary task force because I was just very good at catching burglars. Um, but for the most part, I enjoyed the community relations of policing and just kind of mixing and mingling with the people and helping out. I saw more joy in that, to be honest. Um, I think working on these other units, uh, like the crime task force, I also enjoyed that that as well, just simply because you're you're very proactive. Your objective is just to, you know, knock down crime. So but for the most part, um, the, the greatest joy is definitely on the beat, to be honest. I, I, I wasn't even I would say um, as an officer, I didn't even have a lot of interest in, in moving up in rank because I didn't want to be that disconnected from the people. Mm, you know, I wish a lot more people would say that, you know, we get a lot of guys that end up promoting and all of a sudden it's just like. They just forget where they come from. And all of a sudden it's just Mm -hmm. that, you know, that detachment is real, man. And then you get, not all guys, but you get a lot of guys that get a little bit, you know, they get that title and it just changes them completely. And I've always, and and I'm kind of in the same boat, you know, I was like, man, you've been in police for so long. Why aren't you promoted? Just haven't felt called to it, you know, and just I like you, I just, just like being out in these streets, bro. (laughs) 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 Ain't nothing better, you know, but so many guys now it's like, they do their time on the street and they're just so quick and eager to get off the street, but they don't realize like it's a being, you know, a police officer is stressful. It can be, but man, being in them detective gears ain't no easy feat either though. You know, that's, there's a lot of stress that comes with all that administrative paperwork and scheduling wise, man. Yeah. You, you ultimately have less freedom. Um, I think, I think departments need to do better about rotating people. It shouldn't necessarily be, you know, because again, uh, a lot of, you know, I've, I've been putting together some reform ideas, some real reform ideas, as you mentioned earlier um, in the intro. And uh, I'm looking at reform from three layers, you know, from, from a police uh, officer standpoint, a departmental standpoint, and then a community relations standpoint. And one of the department reform ideas that I have is to actually reducing a lot of the ranking, uh, the ranking system, actually redoing the ranking system, uh, removing a lot of unnecessary uh, titles uh, because it's distracting um, for department, especially it's a way for for people to, um, you know, alienate officers, prevent officers from 
getting an increase in pay, you know, so and it creates the morale issue, right? So uh, it, there's there's a lot to that because, again, to your point, a lot of people end up uh, chasing the ladder than chasing the objective of the job. Mm. What is this morale that you speak of? I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> we had some at one point, man, but I think it got blown up and tossed into the dead and ended up dead and tossed in the river here in Louisville with all the uh, craziness the last few years, man. <laughs> man. It, it, it's, man. It's, been, it's been rough, dude. It has been rough. And you've been out since when did you? So you just recently retired, correct? Yeah, I recently retired um, 2021. Um, 2021 is when I retired officially on paper. And, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, to your point, uh, to your point, yeah, there's a lot going on in, in Louisville and, uh, you know, they just dropped the documentary, uh, not too long ago, actually, that's getting a lot of attention too, in reference to, you know, police corruption and things of that nature. So, oh, you're talking uh, about the vice news. Yeah. Yeah. I just actually did my podcast on it last night. It was kind of talking about it and referencing it, man. You know, it's one of them things where it's like, you know, are there corrupt cops out here? You damn well better believe that there's cops out here that are on the take and taking advantage of people. There, right. it, it would be irresponsible for any officer out here to believe that, you know, every cop out here is a good, upstanding person in uniform. You are right. living in a dream world. That is not the case. But at the same time, we also know men lie, women lie, victims lie. So, it's we're at that point in time now in this career where it's like, man, a cop's word used to mean something, but now mm -hmm. a cop's word means nothing. And that's where it's not a thing, bro. And it's a he said, she said thing. Do you got body camera? Nope, no body camera. All right, don't it's getting tossed out. Case dismissed. Yep. Yep. Case dismissed. Yep. And it's and it's unfortunate, you know. And I remember when I first got my body camera, I can't remember what year, I think it was like 2012, yo, but I was like, I don't need no camera, man. I don't want no camera. It's like, I'm a cop. The public should trust me automatically. And right. unfortunately, we've had issues in policing over the years. I say it's not the majority, but there are things that have happened that have eroded the trust between police and the community. And a lot of people, you know, and a lot of officers don't understand that because, you know, we're so protective of the profession and the thin blue line. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that we ain't done it right all the time. And we have, Correct. you know, we've created a lot of our own problems over the years. And yeah. that's why I was really impressed with you, with your multi-layered, you know, tier thing that you're coming out with to try to help fix all of this. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, we, we have, man. Um, and it's like, to your point, we got to be honest. And I think it's this idea of that, you know, you have a lot of officers that refuse I won't say a lot. You have some officers that refuse just to be honest, man. It's just be real. You know, people aren't stupid. You know, um, there are some misconceptions in policing. You know, I use my channel to clear up those myths and misconceptions. I think it's important because law enforcement hasn't had any PR. We don't have any PR. We don't have representation. We got all these unions, but they don't come out here and, and talk, you know, any legitimate. Uh, they don't have any good, I would say, um, marketing material to mm. put out here to educate the public you know um too much of our profession is rooted in ego and that's why it's hard for a lot of officers to just kind of be honest and admit the fact that there are issues there are issues you know um and to your point i plan on doing a video on it as well in reference to the corruption the corruption thing is it's everywhere you know some departments have it more than others uh and sometimes the corruption can be as small as just two officers um in a department and so people need to understand the nuances uh, in order for us to truly like rebuild this thing properly, uh, in my opinion. No, I'm 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 100 with you, you know, and I say, well, you've been in policing just as long as I have. And, you know, we've both seen this transition from where we were in like 2006 to currently, man, and it's mind blowing the the job the way it is now. And a lot of people say the job is dead. And I tell people the job's not dead. As long as the Constitution is alive and there are people living in this country that need to be protected, this job will never be dead. But the way the job is being done is definitely changed. And unfortunately, right. you know, things change, man. And we got to be able to kind of morph and change with the times. And a lot of cops, you know how it is. We don't like change, right. man. If there's one thing cops do not like is coming to work and finding out something's different. 
and I got to change up the way I'm doing because we are creatures of comfort. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Yeah, that's that's very true. And, and that is that's actually, I think, one of the biggest issues, to be honest, um, the fact that officers don't want to change. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a it's a sense of laziness, because even when I got my body cam for the first time, I hated it. You know, I didn't understand the purpose. I was like, man, you know, again, same thing you said. Um, and it took a while for me to really get it. Maybe not too long, but, you know, I said to myself, honestly, I was like, there shouldn't be anything that's recorded on here that anybody should have an issue looking at. At the end of the right. day, I know that I'm doing my job properly. I don't care who sees it. And that was the attitude that I led with, you know, after a couple of weeks in it. And I didn't realize how big the body cam was a thing until I went to court on a stop sign violation. And they're like, well, we need to see the body cam. I'm like, I'm telling you, she ran, you know. And the the um, the defense was like, nah, uh, we need to see the body cam. If it's not on there, then it didn't happen. Mm. And so now policing is starting to shift. And now I'm at a point too, as well, where we do have some officers that are dishonest and that are that are doing things off the books. And and you know, in order to keep the the quality um, of the job and the integrity of the job, uh, you know, I believe at this point in time we need body cams. Unfortunately. Um, and then that people need to understand. I think now we have to go into a process of educating people on what they're seeing, because any use of force on the body cam is going to look unlawful. Right. So exactly. people it don't. Good. It, yeah, it never looks good. So so now we need to make an effort on educating people properly on the law, not not on their moral belief systems. Right. Those those don't have those don't have a, a place um, when we're actually, um, you know, observing issues and regarding police and citizen encounters. So let me ask you, a, a lot of y'all don't know, this is an audio show only. He's black, just like me. I think I got him beating the pigment color though. I got slightly got the edge on the darkness on him. But <laughs> right, you're probably a little dark. You're probably a little, <laughs> a little crispy. I look like I'm from Jamaica, but I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, and, but, <laughs> but you growing up in a black family, Man, and you know, the sentiment today is, you know, I have to teach my black son how to interact with the police. What was it like that for you when you were growing up with your parents and, you know, migrating here to America and learning to interact with the police here? You know, that's a good question. Um, honestly, one of the things, the conversations we had was, um, you know, you need to be respectful to the police. Um, we didn't get some of the teachings that I've heard a lot of um, black American parents give their kids is more along the lines of kind of, uh, and, and just quote me if I'm wrong, but sometimes along the line of like fear, right? It's almost like a fear. Um, you know, you need to be fearful of, of them. And then, um, but also, you know, do what you're, do what you're supposed to do because you could get hurt or you'll be treated differently. And me personally, my parents, um, <clears throat> they didn't have the issue with the police. They did make it known that there were some officers that did not like black people um, and they, they would treat you differently. Um, but they always made it a point to, to make sure they they explained that it's not all right. And basically saying that, hey, there are some white people that are racist. You know, um, that's something that you need to know, especially in California. That was a thing that was still prominent when I was coming up. And then uh, I would say the other warning that I was given as a, as a young man was that you know, the criminal justice system itself um, will treat you differently than your counterpart. Um, and to me, that was enough to keep me out of trouble, basically, in a way like, okay, well, if they give Timmy, you know, two years and they give me six years, see, that's, that's, a, that's more than enough encouragement to keep from doing wrongdoing is what I need. I didn't need nothing more than that, right? I didn't need to feel it or none of that. I trusted the advice I was given um, from my parents. And so that was a talk that we had um, in reference to in reference to growing up with relationship with the police. And that's good, man, because like said, me growing up, I grew up in the military. I never had a lot of interaction with police as a young black man, but it was never really talked about in my house like you. My parents just always talked about respect, no matter who it was. It was respect. Right. You know, it wasn't really acknowledged the whole black white thing. It was just kind of, you know, growing up in the military. We're all military and we're all the same, you know, but. A lot, I think a lot of black people and a lot of people, a lot of cops in general don't understand where that fear of the police comes from. I believe that is a tr uh, like a legacy trauma that's been passed down 
from slavery mm-hmm. and it's been passed down from generation to generation because you know my great my or my grandma she was born in Mississippi like 1920 you got to imagine she's not going to trust white people or police officers right. and what she's going to do she's going to raise her kids not to trust white people and white officers because that was their lived experience at the time and like now that's not the case but you know that trauma gets passed down from generation to generation and my wife was showing me a video earlier today where this mom was messing with her little black kids. I'm about to call the police on you. They're going to come and take you away. And the kid just starts crying. And, you know, my wife thought the video was funny and the kid was trying to, you know, make up to make up to his mom for it. And I was just like, that's the problem right there. Like we are teaching our kids to fear the police and that be an ally with the police. And so when that Correct. interaction happens with the you know, black guy and the police, this kid's thinking in the back of my mind, oh, they're about to take me away or the media says they're about to kill me. And that makes them make irrational decisions. And that puts yes. the cop in a, in a disadvantage and it puts the young kid in a disadvantage. It's just a, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. And so how do you propose we go about educating the black community on, and how to interact with the police? Um, that's a great question. Um, on my channel, this is something that I touch on a lot. I have a theory that I'm um, doing research and working on called post-traumatic police disorder. And it's uh, one would argue it's it's equivalent to post-traumatic stress, right? When we talk about like military, um, you know, going overseas and, and combat and then coming back and dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Uh, it's it's the same concept. Think of that, but police being the, the main agitator of that stress. Um, and to your point, you brought up a good point saying that this is there's a historical setting in reference to police uh, relations with black people. And what happens with, with, in my theory, the post-traumatic police disorder is that um, there are a couple influences to this phenomenon. Um, we have political influence. You know, we have politicians that, that will push a lot of propaganda um, in reference to police violence and police brutality uh, against the black community, saying that it's disproportionate. Um, that that black people are experiencing police trauma differently than than white citizens of this country, um, and that's not completely accurate, right? And so uh, then you have social activists that push a lot of propaganda as well, anti police rhetoric, as it relates to the as it relates to the black community, and then you also have uh, you know organizations. Um, one in particular would be like the NAACP, and you know, they'll make statements like the police are lynching uh, black people. You know, um, you know, we need to be fearful of the police. Police are slave catchers or they started as slave patrol. So there's a lot of provocative language that's used to play on the emotions of black people. Right. But never really adding context, never really educating. Right. It's almost the, the message is very divisive intentionally. Right. To create division, in my opinion. Um, because none of the messaging is about uniting, healing, fixing, or repairing. Um, it's very ad- adversarial, right, in nature. And so you also get the influence from friends and family, right? You have a family member that had a bad experience. You yourself may have never had one, but they're teaching you, right? So this fear is being passed on to your point. And you have Black people who have a, a, a dislike or hatred for police simply because they were living vicariously through a family member or a friend, right? Or they themselves had a bad experience, but even that bad experience sometimes is inflated, right? Um, Because what ends up happening, I would say it's conflated because um, oftentimes you have a situation where a person was committing a crime, they were violating some type of a law and they got addressed by an officer in a way that they felt was inappropriate or the officer was unprofessional. And then in that, that moment, you end up making that saying that this is a bad experience, but never really holding any accountability to self. And that's something that I've seen often, you know, whereas you start asking questions like what happened, what the officer do. It's like, I hate the police. It's because you were held accountable. You just didn't like the way they did it. Right. Um, and what I've noticed, especially in our community, that a lot of the issues tend to be more geared towards professionalism, a lack of it, where officers are not showing respect. Um, to the citizens, but they're not necessarily 
violating the citizen's rights. And then, of course, you do have situations where officers are violating the rights or using excessive force. So, so these are true, but unfortunately, there's no, there's no context to it. And they're all labeled as bad experiences, but it's not really accurate, right? Because you don't like what an officer is doing to you because you're going to be held responsible, i.e. ticket or being arrested. Well, you automatically don't like that experience. So you label that as a bad officer, right? You label it as a bad experience. And that gets mixed into real criminal um, misconduct from officers as well, right? So these things are blurred. People who are unhappy because they got caught and people who are innocent and were mistreated by the police are two separate different things. And it's like making a, a like a Yelp review, you know, and you just because you didn't like the you got kicked out of the restaurant because you're allowed. You then want to make a complaint about the restaurant mm. and give them one star. Right. Mm. So what happens within the black community is a lot of the issues start to get blurred. And there's not there's there's no one really kind of uh, distinguishing between the difference between professionalism um, being treated properly and then abuse of power, abuse of force and then police brutality. Right. These, these are all separate things that need to be looked at individually. So what is the answer to that? Honestly, um, when it comes to this theory of uh, post-traumatic police disorder, the only answer to it is honesty, right? You can't fix or repair or begin to heal without being transparent. You know, policing, the profession needs to listen to the people. The people need to dictate how policing is done to them. As society changes, we have to be mindful that we have to evolve with the needs and the demands of the people. The people determine what policing looks like. Um, and so I think that's one of the biggest, uh, the biggest issues, um, in my opinion. And so both sides have to be honest. You know, the citizens um, need to be able to hear that they need, they, they're not willing to be accountable on certain issues. But you can't expect the citizens to uh, cooperate when they are not getting cooperation from the police department. So in order for this to change, both sides have to come to the table in good faith. The, the, you know, the profession, police profession needs to be honest and transparent. And then also willing to open their doors and and offer more transparency and more involvement, more citizen involvement is key, absolutely key at this point, because that's what they're saying. The citizens are saying they want to change. They want to see something different. And it's it's on the profession to make those concessions. And as long as and I tell citizens this and even officers, as long as the changes they're asking for don't put officers life in danger, more danger or at risk for more harm, then there shouldn't be a reason um, why we can't open up and, and kind of acknowledge or, or even start to bring about some change. And for citizens, citizens need to know uh, that they have to be willing to be held accountable as well. This is a two-way street and it can't be done without both sides willing to be honest and say, okay, listen, as citizens, we're gonna cooperate, um, but in order for us to cooperate, we need to know that when we're relinquishing our, our, our power to you, that we are trusting you with it. And that's the issue, right? Citizens are feeling uncomfortable uh, trusting police that they are going to do right by that. And that's where the breakdown is at. My man, dude, you just literally summed up the last few years in America with what has been going on, dude. And that's why when I heard you on Mike the Cop, I was like, this brother is on to something. This, this dude, he's... <laughs> Man, like it's just so powerful. And it's the thing is, you're not placating sides. You're not just supporting the thin blue line. No, you're supporting the people that we have sworn to protect and serve, right. you know, trying to work in unison, not divide and be us against them. And that's what I respected about you so much. I was like, man, this guy, this, you know, this is something special. And, and while we're on the topic of having these encounters that go bad, man, can you take us through the day of the, your incident that occurred that led you to being hurt? and how that all started and what transpired from it. Yeah, man, absolutely. Um, so August 1st, 2019, I was just doing my little routine patrol activities and I uh, saw a guy on the phone. We have a law here in Georgia where you can't text and drive. It's like a big law now. A lot of accidents have been occurring because of it. And so um, I have a thing where I kind of you know, I like to see a person truly being distracted. So if I were to write, if I'm writing the ticket, I like to see a person uh, being so engrossed into the phone that they, they, they're unaware of their surroundings. Now I put a right next to him. I'm in a truck, you know, I'm in a Tahoe police truck. I'm the biggest banister you can see. 
you know, police on the side. He didn't even notice me, right? He's in a sedan. He's on his phone, leaning back in the car. And uh, he, uh, the light turns green. And I think it had to be maybe like four or five seconds. You know, he's just, he, he doesn't realize the cars in front of him already drove off. And so, uh, you know, things like that I look for as, as, as good evidence, good probable cause, you know, you know, I already had the violation. I was like to add a little for the judge, right? A little sauce and uh, decided to pull him over. Um, you know, initially, you know, he was very cooperative talking. And then, you know, when I time to ask him to get out the vehicle, um, you know, I, notif- I, I noticed that there were some, uh, uh, an odor, strong odor of marijuana coming from the vehicle and asked him to exit. He refused. You know, I reached in to grab him and he, he drove off with me, you know, holding on to him. And uh, he drove down the interstate with me hanging outside the car. I wasn't able to pull myself out in time. And I uh, went on for a ride and car surfing down the interstate. He started ramming me against vehicles uh, down the uh, down the ramp. And uh, ultimately, I ended up hitting a white van and I got snatched off the car and I hit the uh, hit the pavement. I was unconscious. <clears throat> Um, and I don't, I don't know to this day, I don't know how fast he was going, but you know, I know you've seen the video. Yeah, man, uh, it's, it's amazing, dude. Like, let me ask, so what was going through your mind as you're hanging in this guy's car flying down the freeway? Yeah, I actually was having a conversation with them. You know how the job is, you know, you just try to be calm. And, uh, you know, I was telling him just slow the vehicle down. I was like, you know, I'll, I'll let, I'll let Gus slow down so I can let go, you know? And, uh, you know, of course he didn't. And at the time, I was thinking about what I could actually do. I knew if I let go, I was going to get ran over by the, the vehicles behind me, uh, even possibly his vehicle. I thought about climbing in the vehicle. I feared knocking the steering wheel and, you know, causing him to lose control of the car. I mean, he was going so fast. You know, I thought about even shooting him and realized that that wouldn't have been uh, the best decision just simply because uh, he would still have he, he wouldn't have control of the vehicle to put me in an uncompromising position. And then also I would endanger all the citizens on the interstate. Uh, so, you know, at that point in time, man, I just, I, I just held on and I just, you know, prayed about it and closed my eyes, man. Next, you know, I was waking up and uh, people were carrying me uh, to the patrol car and, uh, you know, and then driving me to the hospital. Uh, it just, it, it's weird. It felt like it happened. It felt like it took a long time. And then I remember, um, seen the video um my my supervisor called me said hey they're gonna play the video on the news you know we just want to give you a heads up and you know let your family know that it's 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 really it's a really shocking video and uh when i saw it first time uh the dash cam video i was shocked that it was only a few seconds right um uh, because at the time it felt like maybe like five minutes man it felt like forever in that in that moment uh, I realized that my brain was actually thinking faster than the actual time that was occurring. You know, that that fight or flight thing is no joke, right? Oh, it is not, man. I'm, yeah, <laughs> been there. <laughs> man, and so, yeah, so you after you, what were your injuries that you sustained from this incident? Yeah, so I, um, man, I had several lacerations to the face. Uh, I think I had over like 15, 20 stitches just in the face. And then, uh, I tore everything, tore every tendon, uh, ligament or whatever they call it. I can't remember what's the difference now, but in my shoulder completely detached my collarbone, um, torn, torn bicep. Uh, I had a, uh, a fracture, small fracture in my lower back, um, my spine. And then, uh, the, uh, like one of those fissures, like a crack, there's like a crack in one of those bones down there. And then, uh, had some bad hip, bruised my hip really bad um the uh my entire left side of my body was 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 damaged my foot my heel the bottom of my foot i had some some small fractures there and uh, i ended up having two surgeries on my shoulder had to get a plate put in um for the repair as well and so uh outside of that shoot um you know, I almost lost my left eye. That was another thing too. I slanted my face on the on the left side and uh, severely uh, lacerated the um, the eye and everything. And so, not the eye, but above the eye. Doctor was shocked that I didn't break my orbital bone. You know, and they were talking about that, just kind of hitting the concrete. But I mean, the yeah, the asphalt. So, um, you familiar with that movie Hitch, the one with uh, Will Smith? Will Smith. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you remember that part of the movie where he ate the uh Oh yeah, <laughs> the shrimp or something. Yeah, in his face blew the up. The shrimp, selfish. Yeah, in his face, bro. The next day after getting out the hospital, man, I woke up. Man, my face looked exactly like that. Um, I've seen the picture. Swelling. Yeah, the swelling, man, and uh, it was so bad, dude. I couldn't even rec- recognize myself. Uh, it was bad, man, and and you know. When you're when you're high on that medicine they give you at the hospital, man, you can't feel nothing. You know, no. you don't feel anything. Uh, but boy, the next day, man, that's when the journey really started. You know. Yeah, you. They, you there wasn't no Benadryl for you like Will Smith in that one, was it? <laughs> nah, <laughs> nothing nah. to fit. Just time. <laughs> Just time, brother. Time. <laughs> How long were you in the hospital? Uh, I was only in the hospital, man, for like maybe about five, six hours. Um, man, it was a blessing, man. I, they just scanned me up. And uh, just to make sure I didn't have any swelling on the brain and things like that, um, they did a full body X-ray. So they, that's where they located all the problems. I had to go see specialists. I had like five different doctors, man. After that accident, no surgeries. Yeah, I did. Oh. I did. I had a I had an orthopedic. I had a surgeon surgeon for my shoulder. Okay. Um, to to replace the repair the collarbone. They actually, what's funny is. <laughs> They had to replace some of the uh, ligaments with pig ligaments, right? Or tendons. Uh, (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen. So sorry about that. We had a slight interruption in the show, but we are back on it. And right before we left, my man was telling me that he has a cop after his injury. (laughs) You know what they call us? Pigs, man. (laughs) And so the doctor decided to give you pig ligaments to repair your shoulder. Yeah, man. (laughs) Kept it all in the family, at least, I guess. Hey. Let me tell you, um, it was uh, it was funny because um, I remember doing the consultation with him after before the surgery, and he was saying that the damage was so severe, and I want to say the tendons because I think he was saying the tendons act like rubber bands, and so because the damage was so severe, and uh, I didn't have surgery in time because of COVID, uh, there was a lot of backed up surgeries, so they're prioritizing surgeries and things like that, and since mine. Though I had a hold, my collarbone was detached from my um, my shoulder. They were like, ah, it's not life threatening, right? So they put me on the back burner, man, for some months mm. uh, before before my surgery because COVID had just had everything backwards, man. This is, you know, in the middle, you know, me going through this situation. It was COVID. It was George Floyd. I mean, the whole country seemed like it was turning upside down, and so it was a big it was a big thing, but. Um, yeah, we had a talk in the in the in the conference room and he was like, yeah, we're going to replace it with some pig pig tendons or ligaments or whatever, some pig parts. And in, in my mind, I said, man, what I was like, man, what if I uh, <laughs> what if I was Muslim? Right. Like yeah, pig <laughs> pork inside of me like that. You know what I mean? So I, I'm thinking out of all the animals, pig, what? And, and I didn't even bother to ask him, man. I was just in so much pain. You know, I was so over it, man. I was ready to just kind of have the surgery. And uh, yeah, dude. So it's funny, man. You know, so when people call me a pig, I'd be like, well, technically, I'm point five percent, point point five percent swine. You know, so uh, you know, what can you do, right? Man, dude. But man, I'll be honest, man. I'm just glad you're okay, and I'm glad you're still here. And I'm, you know, we just uh, my, a bunch of uh, my buddies went to police week last week, and we put our buddy's name up on the wall. You know, Zach Cottingham. He was killed December 18th last year, bro. And I tell you what, man, we we lose so many people in this profession, but the fact that you are still here is a blessing. And let me, so I got to ask, sure. when, after all this was happening, after all this happened, in your mind, I know cops, we are very type A. In your mind, yeah. were you, I'm going to go back to work regardless? What was your mindset? Were you, hey, I'm just done with it all after this, or I want to try to get back to being police again? Yeah, man. Um, you know, first, uh, sorry for your loss, man. Uh, to your point, you're you're absolutely right. We lose a lot of uh, a lot of good um, brothers and sisters in this profession, man. And it's hard. It's hard to deal with. Um, and so, um, you know, shout out to you guys. Um, definitely keeping this memory alive. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you know, man. After my after the accident, in my mind. You know, I, I told myself I was going back in my mind. You know, I wanted to get back out there. You know, when I was injured again, COVID was just popping off. And so I felt very, you know how it is as officers, you, you feel kind of at least the good officers. Right. You feel responsible. 
you know, if you're if you're out down and out and then your coworkers are going through a lot of craziness, you know, you feel like you're leaving them hanging. Oh, and and that's how I felt, man. I was I was down. I was beat down bad. And then I had my coworkers who were catching covid, you know, and at the time, no one really knew what it was and kind of how 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 bad it was. Um, So, you know, the country was shut down, but officers were. They had to, they couldn't go home and see their families, right? They caught COVID. So they, they had to isolate them. They were putting them up in hotels um, and they had to sit there and um, you know, quarantine for a week. They couldn't work. They couldn't go home to their families. And, you know, I'm hearing all these things, you know, I'm hearing officers who were passing away from COVID, you know, and so we were still out there doing that dangerous job, you know, and, and here I am banged up, tied up, wrapped up couldn't get up, couldn't walk, couldn't move. And I, and my coworkers are suffering, you know, and I felt, I felt guilty, man. It was weird. It's a weird thing in policing. You get that guilt feeling. Um, and that's for the officers who really feel bonded and connected and actually love doing the job. You do feel guilty, man. It was, I felt like that in the beginning too. You know, if I took too many days off, I'm like, man, I, my coworkers are going to miss me. Right. Like they're not going to have my help. I knew I was a, a vital piece of the team. Um, and so I, I did, man, I felt guilty. I wanted to get back, um, into it, get back in the uniform. And, and, um, and I'll tell you, man, that when I was in Arizona, so I left my PD in 2018 and went to the border patrol and I was down in Arizona. And so, you know, Louisville, we were ground zero for kind of the protest with the Breonna Taylor thing. And right. I remember being in Arizona, watching the riots kick off and I'm right. like 15, you know, hundred miles away. Like, oh my God, this, no, no, this can't happen. Dude, I felt horrible just watching yeah. my boys and my, you know, my homegirls under fire in Louisville. And, and everybody thinks I'm crazy for coming back. But a lot of people don't understand that that bond between officers that you've yep. been with for over a decade. You know, this, yeah. your city being destroyed and them being attacked. It's a horrible feeling. And you, I at least could physically get there. But you all you could do is sit on the sideline, man. What was going through your mind as all this was going on? And you're just sitting there. Yeah, man, it, it's you feel, um, you know, it's a guilt feeling. And I think I was really hard on myself. A lot of the stress and depression that I was dealing with was from the simple fact that I could not be of service to anybody, couldn't do anything. And um, the numbers, you know, officers catching COVID, you know, they're working with maybe three officers or shift. Man, it was so bad, you know, and it, it was everybody going through it, right? It wasn't just my department. Um, but I think where a lot of my depression came from from the injuries was that uh, I wasn't getting better quicker, right? Like it was, I felt like I was getting worse. The pain was getting worse. Um, I couldn't use my arms. I couldn't walk, couldn't stand up, couldn't sit long, couldn't lay down long. <clears throat> so as months were going by, I didn't really feel like I was getting better. You know, I started getting discouraged. You know, I still haven't had my surgery yet. Um, you know, I couldn't feed myself, couldn't cook, you know, I could barely bathe myself. Uh, I, I just didn't see it, man. And, and in the moments I started losing faith, losing hope. And, uh, you know, I looked in the mirror, you know, my face was still discolored from um, from the bruising and the stitches. You know, I had white spots, large white spots across my face. Um, you know, the melanin didn't kick back as quickly as I thought it was going to kick back, you know. Mm. So brother was looking like one of them, uh, one of them Dalmatians. And <laughs> that so, vitiligo. That vitiligo, right. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so, you know, when you talk about that, accompanied with the nightmares, um, you know, I didn't see hope. I didn't see me coming back. Um, and, you know, then finally getting a surgery and the doctor's like, man, it's going to be about three, four years for your 100%. You know, um, I started to fear going back, thinking that I wouldn't be um, as good as I was before, you know, second guessing myself. Um, I was out of shape. I lost a lot of weight muscle mass wise, you know, so, you know, I couldn't do pushups. I couldn't do any kind of workouts for for almost two years. I couldn't do any any type of physical uh, activity, man. My body, I mean, my arm, one side of my body was shrinking because I couldn't use it. Um, and even now to this day, you know, I just started working out again. You know, I, I, I can max do about 15 pushups straight without without passing out. Right. So it's it's, you know, I'm out of shape from a way where um, I have to recondition my body, um, push past the pain. So um, I, I told myself, you know, after speaking to the physician, 
you know, it gave me that long, that long time to be out. And I, I told myself a lot of my stress and depression was wanting to go back so bad, but could not go back on the time I wanted to. And uh, I got in the mindset that I had to let it go to heal. You know, I felt like I wasn't healing properly because I was still holding on to something I could not, not obtain in the moment. Um, and so um, I decided to let it go. I said, you know, I'll, I'll let the profession go. Um, but by letting it go, I ended up gaining something greater in return. You know, I told myself that I still want to be useful. I still want to do something to help, you know, the the men and women in this profession, my brothers and sisters, and just really, you know, how can I how can I use what I've learned to be of service to them? And so then I started looking at it from a perspective of, you know, a new purpose, identifying a new a new way to service um you know the the profession if i can help the profession ultimately i help the citizens by helping the citizens i'm also helping the officers um and that's what sparked me to start my nonprofit and i believe it's through that kind of reinvoked like a new sense of uh uh purpose a new sense of drive and uh, a new love but just from a different approach now look at i'm service i'm servicing people just from a different perspective but not only can i serve my community i can serve everybody's community with my nonprofit, um with my channel that i have on youtube i look at it from that perspective and it was able to give me renewed strength um to kind of get back into a place of uh empowerment man that is awesome brother and a lot of officers like that's my biggest fear i was asking myself that and my wife like a, a year ago i was like what if something happens to me what am i going to do because all I am is a cop. This is all I have. This is all we know. And that's right. a terrifying answer when you can't answer. If I can't do this anymore, what will I do? Who am I? And right. A lot of officers, man, this job, I tell people this job, it's intoxicating. It gets into every portion of your body, your spirit, your yep. soul. It is everything. You know, and it's so hard to separate yourself from it. And I had that anxiety for a long time going through the riots where if something happens to me, what am I going to do now? Lucky for me, I'm in a right. position where I'm already retired from the military, from my injuries. Yo, but so I can walk away and be okay financially. But when you're at, when your whole being is tied up in that uniform and that badge, man, it's hard to separate. But what you've yes. done here with blue Phoenix rising, man, that is something special, man. So can you explain a little bit more about your nonprofit and what it can do for officers and for the community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to your point, man, uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, it is difficult. Um, a part of the, the the nonprofit that I love that I think is very vital, um, the Blue Phoenix Initiative, the goal is to help embrace, encourage, and empower law enforcement officers to turn tragedy into triumph. And the whole idea is that, you know, when an officer is severely injured in the line of duty, you know, there's a lot that's at stake. You know, they they can't go back to work. They can't you know, do the side jobs, uh, their income is really uh, surrounded by them being able to physically work. Um, there are not a lot of programs or uh, resources for officers when they are severely injured, unfortunately. And <clears throat> what happens is, you know, you're talking about that mental health piece. So so my nonprofit, you know, it, it really points out and brings awareness to the silent suffering of police officers. You know, what happens when the lights are cut off and the uh, you know, the cameras are gone and no one's there, right, to see what you're doing. Um, you're, you're suffering by yourself. You know, you make the news real quick. And then after that, you know, it's, it's on you to get yourself out of the out of the depression, depression state. And so nonprofit, uh, you know, magnifies those issues. Um, we also provide resources for for mental health wellness as well for officers. So I've partnered with other organizations that have a plethora of resources uh, for police officers to help them. Um, with any type of mental health um, issues that they might be experiencing. And then also to help bring about uh, resources for any type of financial strain officers uh, might be enduring um, because of their absence of work. And then uh, lastly, most importantly, uh, encouraging officers to uh, really see life outside of the badge. What, what, what's life outside of the badge or after the badge? is very important, very vital to an officer recovering out of a place of depression. And so really just tapping into um, other activities, um, other passions and things of that nature. And, and it's very important. 
Um, lastly, the most important thing I would say with the nonprofit, it's called the Blue Phoenix Initiative. And the word initiative is very vital because it talks about the relationship with the community, the community taking the initiative to reach out and give support to officers who are in need. Um, and so the purpose of the nonprofit is to set up a network of community support. And when a citizen is notified, when an officer in their community has been severely injured, uh, that citizen is able to send a care package to that officer's uh, department so that the department can send and deliver it to the officer. And the whole idea and the purpose is to let police officers know uh, that they are loved and that they are appreciated um, and that the citizens um, always are willing to support um, as, as long as they know that the support is needed. And I think that's one of the things with law enforcement I experienced personally, which is why I crafted the uh, nonprofit the way that I did was because when I was injured, I got a lot of support from the citizens nationwide. But I recognize that that was mainly simply because of the video went viral. Um, and what a lot of people don't realize is that there are a lot of officers where there are no videos of their injury or them getting assaulted by a suspect. And so, you know, the citizens just don't know. And so the nonprofit's job is to bring that awareness um, so that citizens, citizens can see the, uh, you know, the sacrifices that we make, you know. Um, I think that in turn is where a lot of the big disconnect is. Um, and so to me, I feel like one of the things we always have to realize is that, um, well, the citizens don't know if we look at just the data you know, yearly, approximately about 56,000 police officers are assaulted in the line of duty. And out of those assaulted, approximately 17,000 are injured a year. And so you think about, you never hear about that 17,000, you know, and these, these, this data is from the 2019 statistics. And so, you know, I always like quoting this one because in 2019 was when I was injured as well. I represent one of the 56,000 and also represent one of the 17,000 that was that received severe injuries. And so uh, you think about all those officers during that time period never got the acknowledgement, never got the support and the love from their community simply because they didn't know. Um, and that is the purpose of the nonprofit. And that is an awesome, awesome thing you are doing, brother. I mean, I, hats off to you and applause to you, man. And it's and the one of the what's going to be hard, I know, is getting officers to get to the point to where they want and need to get that help. Because, you know, like I know, type right. A personalities, bro. We can save the world, but we have such a hard time trying to help and save ourselves and help our brothers. You know, mm -hmm. how many times have we had it to where it's like, we know this officer that's a badass SWAT guy, a former military veteran. He's done all these things. And then all of a sudden we get the news that, hey, that dude killed himself. Like, what? Right. What, what what happened? He he's not the type to kill himself. Why would he do that? And like you said, that's suffering and silence. And yeah. I think that's one thing we got going for us currently in law enforcement, man. I know on my PD, we have a lot more focus on mental health for officers that have been involved in stuff and the stigma of, you know, the whole you got PTSD, you're broken. Stop being a little bitch. But, you know, that I, right. that that is what has hurt us more than anything. The the macho culture that we try to constantly put off and we fail to realize that we're not supermen. We're just men, you know, and we have issues and problems, man. And with your nonprofit, I hope and pray to God that we see a lot more officers start to step up and try to use that. But also, you know, I would love to see a lot less officers getting hurt and assaulted in, in the streets. You know, I mean, it's, right. it's, it's been ramped up over the years with the craziness and the protest and the rioting. And, you know, we've had people protesting here, last night and i told people there it's over i'm like it's not over it is laying dormant and i got a feeling it's gonna be a long hot summer bro and oh yeah I, you're gonna your work oh, might yeah. be cut out for you with this nonprofit, the way it's going and oh. we have the elections coming shoot i was just about to say that elections you know is when we're gonna see it um you know you're right man we're not we're not super men but we're men that do super things and i think uh, we have to start changing the language. And a lot of people don't realize, and I tell citizens this all the time, the leading cause of death of police officers is actually suicide. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and people are shocked when they hear that. Um, but but I think society is disconnected. You know, I, I talk about this often on my channel, that we have to start redefining policing. 
redefining what it means to society. And society needs to really understand what they are sending and asking uh, you know, these, these people to do, right? These officers to do. We need to really understand it. Uh, I think, you know, law enforcement had a very uh, loving and coddling, you know, professional campaign where it was like, you know, oh, you know, we're going to protect and serve. I tell people all the time, I said, that's not what the job is about. You know, we need to stop saying that. The job is about law enforcement Mm -hmm. and you can't enforce the law, you know, well, you can't protect and serve until you enforce the law. And, you know, citizens need to understand that concept. You know, we're not here to hand out lollipops and kiss babies, right? right. Um, I think, you know, this is why when citizens are looking at body cameras and incidents involving the police, they're, they're, they're lost, right? They're confused, right? Their reality falls apart. You know, they need them. This is an ugly job. This is a dirty job. Yes, it is. Um, and no, that doesn't excuse us from not doing it properly. But nonetheless, when you you ask for body camera, now you see what's happening. You know, this has been going on. You know, um, there's no nice way to do a dangerous job. There's no safe way to do a dangerous job. Um, and I think we just need to, the, the transparency is so important for citizens to get almost comfortable saying, hey, well, this is to be expected. You know, when a person does not want to be put into custody or they want to resist arrest, uh, it can get ugly, you know. Um, and then it's also a citizen's responsibility to comply. Right. That's something that needs to be taught and understood as well. Like, you know, you comply to survive or you open Pandora's box. And, you know, with the elections coming around, there's going to be a rise and and uh, issues simply because, you know, politicians love to use the police as as a marketing tool. And yes, so, um, unfortunately, so you know, these things we have to be honest about uh, as well. The boldness from the citizenry at this point, the boldness of of criminals now um taking advantage of a lot of things of officers kind of you know wanting to you know remove themselves or pull pull back some because of the political uh you know foolishness that's taking place and so yeah the 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 criminals use that as an opportunity to gain more ground and they've gained a lot of ground since the blm protests and things of that nature they gained a strong foothold um and uh, it's off the chain here man <laughs> it's off yeah it's oh yeah it's unbelievable but man so what's next for nathan daly what's going what what you got going on next bro because i mean you got this thing rocking you got the youtube youtube channel what what else you got going on for yourself oh man uh honestly I say to to amplify right amplify everything um really increase I'm I'm learning as I'm going with a lot of these things. I'm starting just starting to get more comfortable with the YouTube uh videos. I want to do better at that. Do better just managing social media in general. That's a whole nightmare within oh itself. Oh lord. <laughs> yes. Um <laughs> I don't think people understand that or rocking the movie having a, a podcast. It is it is a job. <laughs> it is a job, man. It's a whole job. A job that you know it's it you know you're still looking to reap the financial benefit benefits for you know you you got all the tools the gems to give you know but um you know you you still want to be compensated i think that's the thing too is uh you know wanting to be compensated without being compromised right uh not chasing or or pandering to any one side but just speaking truth um and making sure that you know regardless of of what it looks like you know, be true to self. I think that's my main goal is to always be true to self, uh, not to get caught up in political arguments and things of that nature, um, uh, you know, left and right and, you know, police or citizen. It's just, hey, I'm here in the middle. You know, I call myself the translator. You know, I act as an agent of uh, of, of conversation. Just the goal is to to break down this language barrier, literally is what it is. Poor communication on both sides between the citizens and policing, especially the black community. Um, you know, we have a very interesting, uh, unique relationship uh, that requires surgery to fix, right? Um, and no band-aids are gonna fix this problem. It requires surgical precision to really address these issues and then also to repair them. And it's repairable, you know, it's definitely repairable. Uh, I'm confident that it can be repaired. I think people just have to be willing to do the work 
and then also attacking the right problems, I think will actually bring about the, the, the change we're looking for. So what's next for me, man, is to push the message, uh, get, get into more spaces where people are uncomfortable having the conversation uh, in order to have the conversation because that's where the change comes. Stay out of echo chambers. I'm not really a fan of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, expand, you know, my, my goal is to put my reform ideas out here to, to some politicians that are actually, um, eager to see real change, um, who have the integrity to really push some real, uh, some real reform. Uh, you know, you, you gotta almost be, you know, radical in nature if you're thinking about changing the police system. So, you know, I want to just be, you know, I want to be prepared. I'm big on, on preparation. I don't believe in luck. Right. So uh, I just want to be, continue to be prepared, be ready to have the conversation, ready to pr- provide the, uh, the receipts, the information needed to have the conversation. And so, um, you know, pushing reform, I would love to have a nationwide conversation about it, challenge a lot of these archaic methods, uh, challenge a lot of these social justice warriors who are pushing uh, pushing a lot of propaganda and fear mongering, you know, I plan on going at their neck too. And so, you know, just need to have real conversations, man. I'm up for the task, uh, on top of that, again, starting with the nonprofit here in Georgia. And then ultimately my goal is to branch out as I grow and, and create a nationwide organization, um, as, as it's definitely going to be needed, uh, nationwide. So, man, I have my work cut out for me, brother, for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just... going to throw some more work at you, man. You know what I'm going to tell you you hey. need to do next, right? I'm a published author. I want to I want to see that Nathan Daly book, bro. I'm telling you. Hey, hey man. I want to see that book in the future, man. <laughs> no, nah, absolutely. Absolutely, man. I, I would love to, man. Someone mentioned that to me before, and it wasn't on my radar. Uh, it's funny because after my accident, man, I spent a lot of time journaling. And it was a way that the uh, therapist was like, hey, you know, journal your ideas. And uh, that's what kind of led me to want to pick up this uh, this this massive undertaking because you know I truly do have ideas that will work. I know will work, and uh, I just need to get them out there. I just need the the vehicle to help push the conversation, uh, get get my voice out there, which I think is one of the biggest challenges. You know, um, you know, getting your voice out there, getting in the right audience, getting with the right people. <clears throat> Uh, to 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 spark the conversation, and so I'm always down to have the conversation, man. And I think, you know, definitely having a book in the future would be awesome. I get to tell the tell the stories, you know, um, kind of add some, some inserts from my journal in there as well. So, uh, yeah, bro, I'm I'm excited, man. I think sky's the limit. To be you honest, you should be, but you really should be, man. You know, trying to get your story out there and get you know get out in the space, man. What I realize is that the space, this you know, police officer space on social media is so crowded. You know, but it's like you said, it's crowded with a lot of echo chambers. And, you right. know, we, we got the Officer Tatums, the Candace Owens, the Daniels. And, you know, we got all these people. And a lot of I tell people, I realize a lot of this stuff is a it's entertainment and it's a show and it placates to one side or the other. And right. when you're a genuine person like you and I, it's hard to get in there and start seeing profit from it. Because unfortunately, to make money in this thing, what I've been realizing is you got to play to the extremes and there's no money to be made in the middle, but that doesn't mean that it can't change. And I think what you're doing here, you're putting both sides of the uh, aisle in uncomfortable positions and holding both sides accountable, which nobody wants because nobody holds the moral (laughs) high ground. So, you know, when you come in the middle, it's kind of like when Trump came in office, like Republican Democrat, he's kind of in the middle. They're like, ah, bro, we got to get this dude out of here. He messing up all our money. (laughs) He messing up all the money. You know, so, and that's kind of what it is with the whole social media and, you know, podcasting and a YouTube channel thing, man. So I see the game kind of for what it is, but that doesn't mean that the game can't be changed. And if I'm going to throw my support behind anybody and make sure that the message gets out, it's going to be you because you have Thank you. a unique message. And brother, I believe in you and what you're doing going forward. You have Thank my complete you, support, man. Definitely, man. man. So what, so where can the people find you on social media and how can they help donate to your 5013C? What can they do to help you grow it? Yeah, um, definitely, you guys. Uh, you can find me uh, on all social media platforms at Real. Nathan Daly. Uh, that's Instagram, that's Facebook, um, and also on YouTube, Real Nathan Daly. Uh, very short, very sweet. Um, 
you know, you guys, every, everything can access there in reference to the nonprofit risebluephoenix.org. That's risebluephoenix.org. You guys, please check out the website. Please check out the merch. I have some great merch as well for police officers. If you want to buy them, send them gifts um, by all means. And of course, the donations go 100% uh, to, to the organization and, and helping out officers. And so, uh, you know, I appreciate it so much. And, and brother, I appreciate you you know, give me the opportunity to speak, man. And you're absolutely right. This is definitely a, um, a battle of, of being in the middle, you know, and I, and I agree with you. I think there's a left, there's a right, but no one is holding up the middle. And I think we can create a, a space, uh, of like-minded people who see the truth and want to be a part of that, uh, and create it, create it properly, build it up properly with the right people in mind. So, uh, I'm all for it, man. I, I say we do it. <laughs> hey, man, I'm gonna do. Hey, I'm gonna try to do my little part here with my little podcast and my book, man. Like I say I like you, man. I don't. I got a lot of ideals, but don't know how to get the vehicles going and out there and doing all that. So, so I'm just, man, learning as I go. And I tell people I'm still working in the profession. Right. Like I, I worked all weekend, and I'm like I'm exhausted. And people are like, man, why don't you, you know keep putting the episode out every week? I'm like, man, this. Bro, this is a, a job. <laughs> <Yep>. Brother tired. <laughs> you know, but but I'm passionate about it. And, you know, I've been doing my podcast for a year now, and now I'm pushing my book out. So, and, and like I said, if I could do anything to help you in the future, man, please let me know, because I would love to be a part of your growth. And when you do make it, I want to be able to say, hey, he was on the Iron Pitch podcast right, right when he was yeah. getting started, man. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Same goes to you, man. You already know, man. Anything I can do to help, man. And, you know, my network is your network. So uh, I ain't got much of a network, brother, but we're going to get you up. We're going to get get you together, bro. (laughs) Definitely, man. Definitely. Well, Dave, man, I appreciate having you on. Thank you for your time, brother. I look forward to having you on again in the near future. And I wish you nothing but much success and blessings going forward with everything, my brother. All right. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, man. I'll talk to you later, homie. You have a good one. Yes, sir. All right.